The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. You know, building a bridge can be terrifying work. One doesn't have to be uh, afraid of heights in order to realize the danger that's involved in, in building a bridge. Uh, a bridge over a small creek is one thing, but then imagine with me, uh, if you were on the crew that built the Golden Gate Bridge out in San Francisco, uh, newspapers called it the, the Dance of Danger. And it was called that because it was, it was a dangerous construction project. There was sort of a, a dance that they had to do as they were building this up because the winds were so strong uh, as they were building this that it would literally teeter and totter as they uh, were doing what they were uh, supposed to do on the catwalks and the high towers. Uh, the dance was dangerous enough to even have a, a fatality rate of one death per $1 million spent. It was just dangerous work, and obviously that's not good business for any business to have that many uh, casualties as they're trying to build something, and uh, this is long before the days of OSHA, and so engineers came up, uh, engineers on this project came up with um, a, uh, a way to lower the risk. Uh, one of them was mandatory hard hats. Uh, some were prescription filtered eyeglasses. There was no showboating, so there was no one to go up high and and move around in such a way, and that, in fact, that could get you fired if you were on the bridge and you were showboating in such a way. They had tie-off lines, and they had an on-site hospital that helped greatly reduce this casualty rate, and uh, nearly four years of construction and $20 million spent, uh, only one worker had died. Um, but the most effective safety precaution was completely innovative to bridge building, but it certainly wasn't innovative to the circus. What they decided to do was to take a trapeze net and uh, connect it 60 feet below, which even falling 60 feet, I can't imagine how terrifying that would be, 60 feet below uh, the bridge there so that if workers fell, then they would have a place to, you know, land into. Uh, the, the estimated cost of the safety net was only 130000 and uh, compared to the $20 million of the project, $130,000 was a small change to pay for the lives saved. And so it was so effective that instead of having a, a mortality rate that the newspaper would publish, rather they would have a survival rate. They would say, uh, they would have a scorecard that would say like, eight lives saved today because of the, the, the net, or 10 lives saved on this day because of, of this net. So the safety net had benefits beyond just the, the, the workers' lives. It improved productivity because these people that were frozen in fear to go up on top of the bridge had more confidence knowing that if something happened and they fell, they would be caught uh, by this, this net. And because it became such a, a permanent fixture, it has saved a lot of lives of people that have wanted to inflict self-harm and, uh, and by jumping off the bridge. And up to this point in the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul has been doing a lot of writing about the problems in the church at Ephesus. Timothy had to, he had to step up and lead this church to health and productivity, and the solutions that he had uh, put forth so far in this letter are solutions that are on a macro level. You know, how, should, uh, how should the church be uh, governed? What kind of uh, leadership structure should there be? He has also um, talked about educational curriculum issues and gender role clarifications and, and so on and so forth. And now in chapter 5, all of these things are going to start converging together 
to show how the church, and, and, and paint a picture of just how beautifully God has designed the church. And the best way for me to summarize it is that the church is supposed to be a safety net. Uh, many of us come from different places in life. A lot of us come from very stable backgrounds. Uh, some of us come from very chaotic backgrounds. Some of us uh, here are doing just fine working on the bridge, and there are a number of us that feel like we are, we are teetering on the brink of falling. And the church is to be the safety net that, that catches some and gives confidence uh, to the others. Why? Because as we're going to see this morning, that the church is a family. And a family is a place where members are to feel safe and welcome and valued and, and validated. Uh, a family is a safety net uh, for those who have uh, no earthly family or have been uh, abandoned. It's a place where if people fall off the bridge, there's, there's someone to catch them. It's where we are to get confidence going into our day and then get encouragement when we come back uh, from work that afternoon. And the church is a safety net because of how we are to relate to each other. We're going to find today that the text tells us not to relate to each other as if we are family, but it tells us to relate to each other because we are family. We are literally together in this family of God. And uh, we're going to talk about how family is to treat each other, especially those who have none, uh, no earthly family, or are abandoned. So let's look at the text, and let's... Let's fall in love with the vision of what God puts before us in the church. This is what Paul writes in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We're going to look at 16 verses. It's a longer, cha uh, longer section, but uh, bear with me here. Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. Support widows who are genu genuinely in need. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. The widow who is truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command this also so that they will be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old, has been the, the wife of one husband, and is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, they want to marry, and will therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle. Going from house to house, they're not only idle, but they're also gossips and busybodies, saying things that they shouldn't say. Therefore, I want the younger women to marry, have children, manage their households, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. And if any believing, woman has widow, uh, any believing woman has widows in her family, let her help them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can help the widows in genuine need. 
So if we are going to be the safety net that we're called to be in Christ together, the first thing that we need to do is treat one another as family. We need to treat one another as family. Verses 1 and 2 provide the framework for the rest of the passage. Uh, in, In a healthy family, depending on your role, whether you're a brother or sister, or whether you're a father or a mother or a grandparent or a cousin or whatever, you interact with different family members depending on that role. Uh, a brother and a sister are to treat uh, each other differently than two brothers. Or a mother, and, yeah, there you go. Or a mother and uh, a father are to treat their children def- differently in how they interact with each other. And Paul makes it clear that the same principle is carried over into the church. Look with me in verse 1. Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all, with all purity. So again, uh, Paul is instructing Timothy on how to come alongside, uh, alongside different uh, types of people in the church family. We are to look at older men in the church as we would fathers. Uh, with the way that Paul phrases verse 1, I'm inclined to think that he is referring to some sort of instance uh, in which an older gentleman in the church has fallen into something that may need correction. And either there's sin involved or there's not growth as expected uh, or or whatever. Uh, What has happened isn't as important as how we are to react to it. The context of the church was that there was a lot of stuff that, that Timothy was required to to get in the face of some people about. This isn't one of those situations. Paul isn't referring to one of the false teachers that are, that are wreaking absolute havoc here in the church. Those people that are false teachers are not part of the family. Rather, they are imposters that are destroying the family, and Timothy is trying to rebuild it. And so in confronting older gentlemen in the church, Paul says that we are to refrain from rebuking them. A rebuke is uh, to strike verbal blows. It is to come down really hard on someone for something that is going on. Instead, when correction is needed, uh, Paul says that we are to do it with encouragement. Why? Because this older gentleman is one of your father's in the Lord, regardless of their spiritual maturity or regardless of whether or not you like them. They are a father in the faith. And this week I came across a quote that said that when you interact with an older gentleman, uh, one helpful thing to do, hopefully if you've had a, a good earthly father, is put your father's face in the face of that person. And how would you treat them interacting with your own father if you're thinking of it in that terms? You should treat him with uh, gentleness and generosity and, and, and affection and care. Younger men are to be treated like brothers. It's not just that, that jo- uh, jovial horseplay with the, the arm round and, and maybe given a little bit of a noogie, but uh, it's also the deep care that comes with it. It's the idea that, that you would go to bat for them or that you would sit in the foxhole with them. This is a brotherhood as it ought to be. Older women are to be treated like like mothers. Many of the most hardened criminals have a soft spot for for their moms, that they'll just melt when they talk about their moms. You see uh, these strong, tough biker dudes that have the the heart tattoo on their arm with the banner around it that says, I love mom, because there's just that 
that special spot uh, in the heart for moms. And men can typically take, uh, take a lot of heat uh, for insulting jokes, but the minute that a your mom joke comes up, well, then she needs to, she needs to be defended. Uh, moms are typically the primary caregivers, and so there's just this, this special place uh, in the heart and, and uh, in the church women are to be, older women are to be viewed as such. Uh, other than the older men, Paul only gives specifics about how to treat the younger women. Look what he says here. He says, the younger women as sisters with all purity. Now, Paul understands that younger women in the church, even in the church, uh, there is the potential for them to be objectified by people. There's potential, and the news reports would tell us plainly that, that, that women in the church are, are sometimes vulnerable to the, the advances of, of, of some men that have no business uh, doing so. The false teachers in Ephesus were, were evidently taking advantage of, of some of the young uh, widows within the church, and, um, and Paul wants to put an end to it by reminding them and us that the woman on the other side of the aisle or that is sitting uh, in the same row as you is your sister. She's your sister in the Lord. If you wouldn't hit on your earthly sister, which you shouldn't, or lust after her, then the same is true here in the church. The, uh, these are just two tiny verses in a sea of biblical truth, yet these verses give us a picture of, of the beauty of God's care and his design for the people of the church. And this isn't hypothetical, as I said. Paul isn't saying, treat these people as if they're family, but rather he's treating, he says, treat them as family. Fathers, at, uh, older people, older men as fathers, older ladies as mothers, and so on. The church isn't something that you just come to on a Sunday morning for perhaps an hour or two and you know, move on, but it's a family reunion in which you are cared for and loved appropriately. It is a, a gathering of family that creates uh, a herd immunity to all the junk that we face in the world. So that's the framework for the family of God. Then it works itself out in how various people are cared for in the church. That goes right to our second point is that we need to be the church by caring for those who are the most vulnerable. We need to care for those who are the truly vulnerable. At first blush, it's, it's easy to look at the rest of this passage and label it as uncaring. It would be simple to read this quickly and complain about how strict uh, the, uh, the church should take a line of who can and who cannot receive help. However, I want to recommend that as we approach a passage like this, we should slow down our thinking and we should understand the context in which Paul is writing and then come to the conclusion that this passage is a, is a beautiful design for how the church really is supposed to work and how uh, people are to be protected and cared for. So with that in mind, look with me in verse 3. Support widows who are genuinely in need. Uh, throughout history, uh, widows in particular have been in very, very dangerous positions. Um, most women 
didn't have the means to provide for herself or if there's children involved. Uh, so if a woman suddenly found herself without a husband, unless she had a family to take care of her, well, it was pretty serious because it, it meant that she may have a life of begging and maybe even prostitution. And to add to this, the word widow here in Greek doesn't rigidly mean someone who has lost a spouse uh, to death. It actually encompasses any woman who is without a husband. And it would be helpful to note that this includes, especially in our modern context today, this includes women who have been divorced and abandoned by their husband. So what does Paul mean then that the church is to support these women who are genuinely in need? He defines it in verse 5. He says, the widow who is truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues day and night in her petitions and prayers. So the woman in need then is someone that is, that is completely on her own, has no one to take care of her needs. Perhaps her husband may have died uh, or there are no children to take care of her. Perhaps they were abandoned. Uh, whatever the case, they've ran out of options and they have nowhere else to turn to except the Lord. And in their desperation, uh, Paul says that they have put their hope in God as evidenced by their fervent prayer for their situation. For its part, the, the church uh, is seemingly to have internal protocols in which uh, such people are taken care of. Look at verse 9. No widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband, is well known for her good works, that is, she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. Now, please... Please don't look at that as a checklist. Please don't think that what Paul is saying, that if there is a, a widow that would come to Timothy in the church of Ephesus and say, I am on my own, I have no means of anything, that Timothy would go, nah, it says here that you're 59 and a half, so come back to me in six months. Or, hey, have you ever washed any of the saints' feet before? Well, if you haven't, sorry, you're, you're kind of on your own. This is not a checklist. He's saying that this woman is to be enrolled if she has a track record of faithfulness. Does she or has she uh, exhibited faith in Christ as demonstrated by her works? The age thing makes sense because apparently in New Testament time, if you were 60, sorry, that, that meant that you were old. And uh, it was at 60 by which there was less likely for you to have remarriage prospects and be able to be taken care of. Uh, but again, we're not talking about a rigid standard. We're talking about the church standing up for the most vulnerable. And that's why I la uh, labeled this point as caring for those that are truly vulnerable and not just widows. The way our society is set up is much different than Ephesus. For good or for ill, uh, there is social security. Uh, they didn't have state and county services back then. Uh, so we can't necessarily compare apples to apples here because it's a different context. But what does that mean for us today? It means that as a church and as the people of God, 
we ought to prioritize our finances and our relational energies on those who are the most vulnerable in our church and have no one. It means being deliberate about uh, providing rides to the doctor. It means providing company and companionship. It, 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 it means all of those things that you would do with your earthly mother or father, depending on, on, on the situation that we do here in the church because we are a family and we step up. We take care of people. We protect people. And please don't think there's a gender bias here. If there's a widower or men who are divorced with no family, this includes uh, people with special needs when their families are exhausted and, and, and don't have much of a respite. It is stepping up and filling the void with those who, are, who truly need help. And this is uh, totally countercultural. The world lives with this ethos that you were to look out for numero uno. And when uh, a need for uh, their widowed parents, especially if they're elders or if they're elderly, the tendency is just to say, well, you know, the state can take care of them with Social Security. Or, yeah, you know, I don't want to append my lifestyle. Let's just throw them in a nursing home. And then the world looks at the church and they see how the church takes care of people who aren't even their flesh and blood. And it's weird. But oddly beautiful. You know, we're doing a, a trunk or treat here tonight, and it's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. We're gonna have tons of kids that we're gonna minister to in that way. But let me ask you this: what is a more effective way? I'm not saying trunk or treat is bad because we sort of came up with the idea, and it's good. What is the difference between a witness of giving a, a child a Snickers or a Kit Kat or whatever it is or sacrificing ourselves for the benefit of someone that we have no earthly obligation toward? What does the world look at as loving we need to be the church by caring for those who are truly vulnerable. With that being said, Paul says that we also need to be wise and discerning uh, about who uh, withholding some things from certain people as well. And that's our third point, is that we need to be uh, wise and discerning uh, with those who aren't truly vulnerable. And I usually don't put negatives in my points, and well, there we go. Again, I don't want um, how I labeled this point to be insensitive or uncaring, uh, as if there are some people in the church that we should deliberately neglect. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think Paul is saying that. Uh, I want to attempt to show that it's actually Paul's argument that it, is, that it is for the purpose of helping people growing in our faith and to protect the resources of the church. I know that sounds weird, but let's see what Paul says here. Uh, as a church, we are obligated to serve, provide, and protect and all those good things, those who are most truly vulnerable in our midst. But Paul also says that there are a few categories of people that we should uh, be cautious about entering into a commitment of resources. And the first category, Paul says, is for widows that have family available to help them. Look with me in verse 3. 
uh, support widows who are genuinely in need, verse 4, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. So in these verses here, Paul wants to distinguish between those women who are truly in need and those who are not truly in need. Those that aren't truly in need have family to care for them in place of the church. It is ideally the obligation of the immediate family to support those who are vulnerable in the family. And the reason for that, uh, for that care within the family, Paul says, is that it is a means by which we grow in our faith. Caring for our elderly parents is a way that we grow in godliness. Paul says it right there, that they learn to practice godliness toward their own family. It's good to come here and learn. It is good to learn theology from a book. I would love it if every single one of us had Wayne Grudem's systematic theology on your nightstand. That would be great. But knowledge without action means nothing. Knowledge not practiced is not, uh, is not knowledge at all. It's uh, only when we let go of ourselves and we start serving others that we grow in godliness. So because of this, it is not wrong for the church to say, um, hey, as a church, we want your son to grow in faith. We want him to grow by learning godliness and, and taking care of you because of that. Uh, we're going to withhold financial support for now. And if he is not responsive to it, if he declines it, we're here. And we are ready to take care of you. And if he refuses to do so, verse 8 tells us, if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So what happens when, uh, when a widow has a family, but the family refuses to take care of them? Uh, as, as a church, the true family, we come in and we say, you are going to be loved. You are going to be taken care of. If the refusing family member is a member of the church, it's grounds for church discipline. It is going to them and saying, look at what Paul says here. If you neglect this, you are denying the faith. And you're worse than an unbeliever. Boy, that's harsh, isn't it? But Paul's very clear. Your refusal to take care of your family is a grievous sin. And we want you to repent. We want you to turn. But if they fulfill their obligation, they grow in godliness. And also, notice what Paul says, repay their parents. And this may make some of you maybe sit up and say, All right, Paul says it's time for payback. All of those uh, prom dresses that I bought, all those tuition checks that I paid for, hey, it is time to get a return on my investment. Well, that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that is necessarily a financial return. Well, what it means is that it's a return on the joy of seeing children and grandchildren who have a heritage in the Lord and have taken upon the gospel uh, on themselves and take care of family making sure that your needs are met, that you're loved, that you're cared for. So the church ought to be cautious in, in support of, 
the families who have the first line of help. But notice also that the church is not to encourage irresponsibility. Verse 5, the widow who is truly in need and is left all alone has put her hope in God and continues day and night in petitions and prayers. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So, believe it or not, there are people out there that take advantage of systems. I know that's hard to believe, but they're out there. Uh, just this week, we had somebody come in the church that got grumpy with me and Dave because we, she wasn't eligible for the help that we were able, able to give her. And it turns out she was just using the system, which is somewhat typical. The problem with is that there are only so many resources that the church has to go around. And so when someone comes in and talks about wants instead of genuine needs, we can't support that. Why don't you feed a monster? Because they only grow and they just want to take more and more. Paul goes on to say that a person, that person like this is, live, is like the living dead. By lovingly saying, no, I'm sorry, we, we can't do that. It teaches the person that responsibility matters. And finally, there's a prohibition against assisting younger widows. Verse 11, uh, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when they are drawn away from Christ by desire. They want to marry and will therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, going from house to house. And they're not only idle, but they're also gossips and busybodies saying things that they shouldn't. Therefore, I want younger women to marry, have children, manage households, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. Wow, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? Paul's making an awful lot of uh, assumptions on some folks here. But let me suggest that Paul is not saying that young widows or divorcees should never get help from the church. Notice the word enroll. This is a program of continuous and continual assistance. And why shouldn't they be enrolled in this? Because Paul mentions that there are certain temptations that are um, more uh, likely to be uh, part of a, a young lady who is divorced or, uh, or widowed that uh, we don't find in older it is not uncommon for a young widow or a divorcee shortly after those events to say something like, I am never going to get married again. It's just not going to happen. I, I'm not putting myself through that. But as the years go by and God works on her heart, she may look down the row at church and see a young beau and pleasing to the eyes and pleasing personality. And all of a sudden, wedding bells start chiming. That is not wrong. That is a good thing. Paul says that it is good to get remarried. You should get remarried. But that original pledge of I'm never going to get married again is probably what Paul is referring to here. And... Uh, in this situation, it is good that she would desire to get remarried. And further, verse 13, Paul details the trap uh, that I don't think is specific just to 
um, young women in a situation like this, but perhaps it's common to most people that have too much time on their hands uh, and not enough to do. Um, verse 13. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, going from house to house. They're not only idle, but they're also gossips and busybodies, saying things that they shouldn't. Gossip is perhaps the, the biggest accepted sin in the church. We meddle in things that are none of our business, and we say things about people uh, to other people that we would never say in front of that person. So when Paul encourages these widows here in verse 14 to get married, one of the purposes is to protect them from this sort of sin. And so as not to give the adver uh, adversary an opportunity to accuse us. And of course, there may be some that, that do choose to not get married. And that's great. God gifts people for marriage just as he gifts people for singleness. And their hope is in God. And when needs arise, the church is going to be there for them too. But we need to be cautious about the distribution in the church as well. You know, the trapeze uh, net hanging at the bottom of the Golden Gate Bridge has provided to be a, a life-saving device, simple life-saving device for many. Paul has laid out the safety net here in the church for those who are the most vulnerable. The church is family, and countless lives can be saved and renewed if we, the church, stepped up and realized our brotherhood and sisterhood in, in Christ Jesus, living sacrificially so that we are all cared for, all protected, all valued, and all loved. Let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Moore, Minnesota. You are welcome to pass this message along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it in any way without written permission from Emmanuel Baptist Church. This message has been made available by the generous supporters of Emmanuel Baptist Church. For additional information about how you can partner with Emmanuel, please visit us at www.emmanuelmora.com. There you will find more free messages and links to ministry opportunities to help you grow in your faith. If you are watching on YouTube, please click the subscribe button to always receive the latest messages. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Baptist Church, Mora, Minnesota. Knowing Christ and making Him known.